0: hi this is andrew and this is keynote the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers hello everybody it is monday january the 23rd 2023 Uh, amidst another Mass murder, mass shooting in America. It's hard to find optimists. I've gone out and looked for one and I found one. My guest today has a new book out (laughs) called Words and Music, Confession of an Optimist by Steven Rubin. And Steve is joining us from his apartment on his iPad in New York City. Steve, uh, are you the last optimist left in America? Hardly. Well, who else? Your wife, your kids, your friends? No wife, no kids. Um,
1: plenty of optimists left. Um, I think it's it's people like us who get everything done. I'm also an enthusiast. I'm horrible.
0: So the book, uh, Steve, uh, Words and Music, would you call it, 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 it's out tomorrow, would you call it an, an autobiography? You call it a confession? Um, what do you confess? I, I,
1: I would call it a memoir because I thought that nobody would give a crap about my life in the bronx as a kid so it's not at all personal it's almost a hundred percent professional uh when it crosses over with my wife's career she's now deceased but uh she she was in in classical music for a while i was in classical music when it crosses over i discuss her but other than that there's nothing personal in it it's, it's professional
0: steve you're a to use a a new york word you're a or you have been a maven uh, a marker in the in the publishing business is this really what this book is about when you look back at your life if there's one industry that you believe you've shaped and has shaped you is it the publishing business
1: no i, I if, you, if if you look back completely on my career first of all it's two careers one career as a journalist mostly writing about classical music and the other career is as a publisher so i think they both shape both shake me enormously.
0: Uh, you say you began in in, um, in classical music uh, as a journalist. Tell us a little bit. Not everyone watching or listening to this show will be familiar with Stephen Rubin. Tell us the overview of the Rubin life, Steve. What happened? Okay. When were you born? And where were uh, you born?
1: 1941, uh, the Bronx, New York. Uh, bratty kid. Mother said, have piano lessons. I said, no. No piano lessons. That's what everyone does. I want art lessons, and I didn't have a shred of a shred of talent for art. I surely had talent for music. The only thing I accomplished in art was a drawing of a piggy bank. Anyway, um, I started writing for the New York Times in 1971 as a freelancer. Uh, the greatest
0: career move what I ever. happened between did. 1940 and 71? That's a that's a long time to uh, jump. I, well,
1: I, I didn't know you wanted that stuff. All right, I went to. Um, I went. I, I, I was in college at, at NYU, where I was the uh, editor of the school newspaper, The Square Journal. I then went on to graduate school in Boston, happiest year of my life. Um, nothing but college kids in Boston um, at BU, and I got a master's in journalism. Nobody needs a master's in journalism. It's a total waste of time. Um, then I got a job at United Is that Press- why
0: it was fun? That's because you didn't need the uh, degree?
1: That no, it was fun because nothing but college kids. It was great. I lived in a five-flight walk up in Back Bay. It was just absolutely wonderful. Anyway, then uh, I got a job at United Press International writing captions, and then I got offered a job at United Press International to run something called the Roto Service. The Roto Service was five uh, individually edited, photographed features for the Sunday Roto Gravure magazines. Boy, does that me anyway so um i i did that for a while then they closed down the roto service and they said hang around we'll get you a job i said what job they said no job we're not sure yet so i quit and i became a freelancer and blessedly i got i made it i got into the new york times as a freelancer on a spec piece about the then director of the new york city opera and then i did a couple of other pieces and um Ultimately, I did a piece on Pavarotti that sort of really set me going, and um, I remained there for 10 years, uh, and the best thing that I ever did was to turn down their offer of a, a job, because I don't think that would have been the right thing for me. I'd be underappreciated, underpaid, and probably still there and bored out of my mind and unpleasant.
0: Steve, Do you think, I know this is a hard question, but do you think that uh, there was a young Steve Rubin just out of NYU? Uh, There are young Steve Rubins, very different world, very different cultural environment. Do you think you could have got that job offer at the New York Times? I know your book suggests that there's a degree of what we might call political correctness now in our cultural industries, which isn't necessarily for the good.
1: Sure isn't. But I don't understand the question.
0: The question is, would you have been offered as a young white male a full-time job on the New York Times?
1: Well, that's a great question, Andrew. Um, uh, probably not. I don't know. I was really good in this uh, on the classical music front.
0: Well, I don't doubt you were really good, and I'm sure there are some versions of yourself these days who are really good. What yeah. were the problems back then? I mean, today people complain about... Uh, the way in which some minority groups perhaps are favoritized some people think that's wrong was the problem back then the reverse that women well, problem, people of minorities is, had no chance
1: if if there were I'm surely wasn't aware of it um the problem it was a personal one for me I just felt that I'd be sort of boxed in in the New York Times and i I hardly had a f- I think I have a, a latent aggressiveness when it comes to my career. I, I never really planned any of this stuff. I just didn't feel it would be right. And it took it took a lot of nerve to turn down the great gray New York Times. But I did. And I'm I'm not sorry at all. Steve. Ironically, ironically, later on in my career, I became the I became the publisher of Times books. Neither here nor there.
0: Go ahead. You uh you must have had a great passion for classical music as is reflected in the book. You know, you met some of the, the major figures in, in, the, in the tradition, opera singers, even Dmitry Shostakovich. What kind of taste did, did or do you have in classical music?
1: It, it's, it's very diverse, um, a dangerous word to use these days. Um, I, I, I would say that I have a particular fondness for um, piano music for um symphonic music and probably most of all for operatic music and on those three areas i'm completely all over the place Um, i have a a gigantic collection of of cds and i have a place in london a place in new york and a place in long island and i have cds all over the place and i have i have i have i might have eight performances of one opera because that's what i love to do is to compare them Um, so I'm, I'm very open, including to contemporary pieces.
0: You met Pavarotti, uh, another controversial figure. What was he like?
1: He was adorable. He was like uh, an oversized whale. Um, he was so cute as a youngster, I can't tell you. He would say to me, Stiven, Stiven, outside may be fat, but inside is muscles, muscles. Uh, and then he turned into a monster at the end of his career, but I got him early on and he was just fabulous. But, but very, very, it was all, it was all instinct. He barely could read music. His, his, his um, coach told me that he had to drum the rolls into his head. And, um. but he had this affinity for music that was so natural. I mean, his diction was crisp and clear and he just knew how to, had a phrase stuff, and he was very careful about roles. You know, he hated Traviata. He says, "Alfredo is stupid." He hated Faust because the character of Faust is is, is, is second, is, is tertiary to the other people. He was very clever about what roles he wanted to do, and um, he had a very very limited repertoire. But I got to tell you something. You, you I, I, I rewatched. Um, a, a documentary on him, just to be in the presence of that voice is so joyous, I can't tell you. It's just so beautiful.
0: I just uh, reread Alec Ross's uh book on the history of 20th century classical music. Wonderful the rest of book. The voice. Yeah. And uh, it's I'm one sure. One of you the know. all-time
1: great books.
0: Yeah, it's a brilliant book. Um and one of the characters I thought, maybe I'm wrong, who came out of it looking pretty awful, was Pierre Boulet you note in in your uh, in, in in the autobiography words of music that you came across him was he as awful as he sounds oh no not at all i mean I,
1: he was he was utterly great to interview so first of all i got to give you some context here this was in the early 70s when he was the music director of the new york philharmonic he had had very little experience in conducting and he he had he come there 25 years later it would have been a success but then he was really hated by the orchestra and because you know i'm aggressive i'm an aggressive reporter i found all these orchestral members who were willing to say horrible things about him so this was for the new york times magazine and it was it was really it wasn't me saying that Boulez was horrible it was the people in the orchestra i loved him as an interviewer and he loved me until the piece came out then he hated him. uh and the, why and, what did you say about him well the 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 <laughs> The headline did it all, and as you know, writers don't write headlines; editors do. So the headline was the iceberg conductive.
0: Yeah, that but did... writers always blame the editors for the headlines. But the headlines simply take the spirit of the piece, so it's yeah. not fair to blame the editors.
1: <laughs> no, in this case, I'm not blaming. I'm just citing that I didn't write that headline; they did. Um, I I, I got to tell you something. I love. It. He's really smart and and very charming and fun, but. Um, he hated me after that piece, and all. Basically, the piece did nothing but report how orchestra members hated him and why.
0: Yeah, he sounds from the from the Ross book. He sounds pretty awful. What's yeah. your What's your feelings, um, Steve? And I'm sure you have strong ones on Schoenberg. How corrosive no, an influence you. did he have broadly on 20th century music?
1: I think he had a great influence on 20th century music, and I loved loved some of the earlier stuff um but i don't love the very later stuff no not at all um i think his his, his he had a tremendous influence and i think it was short-lived i don't think it mattered he matters anymore in the he matters in the history of music for sure and you know i i i've, I've seen many performances of moses and aaron it's a, it's a tough it's a tough haul. it's a <laughs> really it's
0: yeah you um you uh you spent half your life or a lot of your life in music classical music as you say a lot of your life in I still publishing. do
1: it all the time now I still do Right it. I mean
0: if if you'd have had a a Schoenberg like figure in publishing who dominated and shaped all writing do you think people would still be reading books <laughs> You are a scream Andrew um uh, yeah I, I I'm know. just I'm just channeling my inner Steve Rubin
1: uh <laughs> doing very well too um i think that um that no one person in books would have had that influence that schoenberg had in, in classical right.
0: music yeah it's amazing reading the ross book and you know i'm not an I, hey I, I'm a- that was one of the few one
1: of the few great disappointments of my career in publishing i was a chicken the auction for that book got too high, and I pulled out. I've never forgiven myself.
0: Yeah, well, you have good reason. Great, it's that's a a shameful, great. especially since you were a classical music guy. I mean, that should have been a no-brainer.
1: Yeah, no, what I, about
0: it, Shostakovich, Steve. You met him. I mean, I'm not sure if he was a great man, but he was a great composer, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, yeah, great composer. And at the time that I met him, he was he was old and and a nervous wreck. He pick at his hands like this. And instead of writing about a great composer, I wrote about his tics. And I'll never forgive myself for that. I was a total jerk. And I'm and my editor, who was a great editor, allowed me to publish that piece. And I that's one of the few pieces I'm I'm sort of ashamed of. Other than that, I'm not ashamed of any of
0: them. I mean, we shouldn't expect our great composers to be great men, should we? I mean, Shostakovich's work reflects um the inadequacies, shall we say, of humanity—they reflect him. So why would yeah. we expect him to not pick his ticks?
1: But wait a second. But they also reflect the fact that the fucking excuse my French Soviets um, really had at him terribly, terribly. So I, I think it, you know he was he was he was done in by the Soviets more than anybody, and and then he just as I said he had all these ticks and all. The music was great, yeah, music's wonderful. And 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 again but look just, at mr wagner look at mr wagner yeah
0: well that's One another of story but it, on Earth and, and
1: right fabulous. um
0: coming back to the ross book i mean he does underline the fact that new york in the 50s and 60s became the center of classical music uh minimalism steve reich and so on um how exciting was it as a young writer lover of music to be in new york those days as well, I-
1: I was too young then.
0: Well, even in the seventies, it was still pretty exciting. Yeah, in the seventies, it was
1: still pretty good. Not as not not quite as dynamic. It was fabulous. Listen, New York, New York can't be beat for music. You know, when I had my glorious year in Boston, I thought, oh, I, maybe I can live here. Well, I couldn't live there. You know, you have one orchestra. In New York, you get seventeen orchestras a month. You know, it's it's just it's just and there's an energy here. Although I actually prefer the energy of London.
0: Yeah, for London, I think classical music is even better. But so let, let's talk about this great shift in your career. How did you manage to do it? How did you get from right, so music writing, to words?
1: I was writing a syndicated publishing column. And one of my sources was then publisher at Simon at, uh, I'm sorry, at Bantam Books called Jack Romanos. And he, and we knew each other. Professionally only, he took me out to lunch and offered me a job, and I said, "Good God, good for you!" How old were you? How old were
0: you? That was 1984,
1: so uh, I was 40 something. So um, I I said, "I I said, yeah, I'd like to give it a whirl." I was shocked, frankly. And um, then I had dinner with the person who I really have to work with, and we hit it off like gangbusters. So. It was. It, it, he was really smart. He saw something in me I sure not See, and I took to publishing. I didn't miss journalism at all. I thought I'd be bored. I was never bored in publishing. It was. It was just wonderful. So it was d- sort of dumb luck. And then, and then nine months after I got there, he left to go to Simon and Schuster, and she was promoted to his job. And she wanted to promote me to her job, and I said, "I'm nine months old. I don't know anything. No way." And then, then she couldn't find anyone, so I became the editor in chief of Bantam Books at nine months old. Um, so that was very scary because I had a, a huge staff, like twenty some odd people reporting to me. But you know, there's something to be said for you know, throw the guy into water and see if he can swim. So, were I you? Uh,
0: I mean, you mentioned your love of opera. Were you a book guy? I mean, who are your favorite writers?
1: Oh, I've always been a book guy. But as, as a kid,
0: I was always into
1: bestsellers, so I was very much middle brow. The first book I ever there's nothing wrong with that, is there? No, 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 absolutely not. The first book I remember reading was the The City Boy by Herman Wouk. Um, um, but then, then the more I the more I got into publishing, the more even though Bantam was was wildly. Um, uh, you know, it was a popular house. Um, i I really started reading more more serious books than I read um, as a youngster. so I, I would say my taste in books now, right now i I read almost ninety percent nonfiction. But occasionally I do read fiction, and I love it. Uh, it depends on the fiction. Um, and I love I love political fiction uh, and nonfiction um you know having published Michael Wolff was was a great thrill because we,
0: was, the the bad yeah the uh the, the Trump Michael Wolff
1: yeah the fire and fury I mean but that was the first book that really told us maybe there's a real problem with this guy um anyway so I I love those kinds of books love 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 them and I love dealing with narrative journalists and I do a lot of that and um but you know I, I I'm also I'm also very much um attached to fiction. Uh, Sebastian Folks is a friend of mine and an author I published and I hope to publish again. Um, And um, I'm all over the place a little bit.
0: You published of course, Grisham and Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code. Are you proud of that? Is that one of your, those your some of your greatest achievements? I assume your bosses were happy with you. No,
1: you bet. Um, uh, uh, Dan Brown, I, I perceive of I his, even though I, I know him and still love him, he's a lovely man. Basically, I, I published one book of his. Admittedly, that was the book that made him, but uh, whereas John, I had a long relationship with. I didn't acquire John. I got to double Down. and I had him, but I was in charge of the publishing of it. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that Da Vinci Code was a defining moment of my career. I would say that publishing John for all those, I think I published about 23 books, um, was thrilling. Um, but but you know, I, I'm just as when I got to Henry Holt, I, I inherited Hillary Mantel and Paul Oster.
0: Mm. Be we just than- had Paul Oster on the show. Actually, he's uh, he's left Holt. Now he's at. Um, he's at Morgan Endrican's Grove.
1: Well, good. I'm glad to hear that because he- why? <laughs> because <laughs> Morgan Endrican's Grove is going to do better for him than than uh, the current Henry Holt. Well, that, a wonder, that 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 doesn't
0: guy. speak particularly well of the future of American publishing if one of the major publishing houses doesn't do a good job with one of America's great writers, does it?
1: Well maybe it's not a major publishing house.
0: What, Henry Holt? No. I was thought That's you were going to say uh, Oster is not a major American writer, but he is.
1: Oster is, and, and I'm proud to say that I published the most successful book he wrote, one, two, three, four. Um, so, um, uh, I just think the, the, the current state of, the, uh, of Henry Holt is not what it was. Um, so, I'm delighted. Why, to hear- uh,
0: Excuse the. Dimness of, of this question, Steve. And there's
1: nothing dim about you, Andrew.
0: Well, you haven't heard this question yet. Um, why are there so many publishing houses? Why do we have Henry Holt? Most writers have no idea where it is, or or readers. Why can't they just get closed down and put into one publishing house?
1: Because you wouldn't. Because you need publishing is about is about passion, and and you need the different points of view and tastes of people. Um, I think that we definitely publish too many books and maybe you could say that some of the publishing houses have too many imprints but i think you want a you know a wide sense of uh of case to be portrayed i mean um i mean i love the independent houses like like morgan's house or or like uh, I like uh, norton um those are great houses um but then again some of the corporate houses like you know i'm currently working for simon and schuster's spectacular operation just spectacular
0: what do you make of the Justice Department's um, successful? Oh, I,
1: thing, I thought the whole thing was a, a lot of buoy.
0: Um, Just to be clear, the Justice decision uh, not allowing Justice Department not allowing uh, Bertelsmann, uh to buy uh, Simon and Schuster random round.
1: Yeah, correct uh, f- for ridiculous reasons. Um, I think that that uh, since since Paramount, the the um, parent company of simon and schuster is determined to sell it because it's not part of their core stuff um uh it'll be sold my guess is publishing houses like harper collins or hachette which would be the two obvious people to bid might be frightened to bid or worse paramount might be frightened to accept their bid for fear that the justice department will do something horrible so my guess is it will be sold to venture capitalist money unless some European person gallops in on a white horse.
0: Steve, you don't seem to be someone with a lot of regrets, but do you have any, particularly in terms of your career in publishing? Did you get yeah. the internet, for example, early enough?
1: Yeah. I have a tremendous regret. When the former now deposed head of Penguin Random House, Marcus Dola, yeah, uh, had the bird brain, b- bird brain scheme of putting Doubleday and um, Knopf together. Uh, I essentially was out of a job, even though they tried every way in in their power to keep me, including you know a, a very a very uh, generous salary, although nowhere near as generous as what they had paid me before. Anyway, I tried for nine months. I would tell you honestly that that was the only nine months, only time my entire career in publishing or anywhere where I was seriously unhappy.
0: What uh, years were, were they?
1: Um, uh, I think eight, uh, I think nine, uh, 2008, 2009, something like that. So, so basically it came down to, it came down to independence when I was running Doubleday very successfully. Um, I could do whatever I wanted, and now in this new job as publisher at large, I had to go to the heads of Knopf, Random House, and Crown to get anything done, and it just, it just, it just was very demoralizing. Very demoralizing. Even though I did my, the last thing I acquired for Random House was the memoirs of George W. Bush. Now that surely did not make me a very popular person, but it's, they they sold three million copies, so that was okay. I never would have thought they would. So I thought they would sell a couple million, but not three. Um, and uh, he was a joy to work with, by the way. Um, and um, so I was, I was miserable. I was, I was, I, I used to close my door and go shopping on the internet. So <laughs> all, all of this, I'm supposed to be plugging my book. All of this is recounted in my book.
0: Um, so uh, don't give all the secrets away, Steve. Otherwise no, no one will read the book or buy the no, book. Even more important. No,
1: no, absolutely not. Uh, so I was miserable for nine for nine months, and and then. Um, then I and
0: what's started... a what's a miserable Stephen Rubin like? Uh, bad-tempered, solitary. No,
1: I, I, I'm very very bad-tempered, and I'm I'm I'm, I'm very really depressed. But I think I was pretty close to being depressed there because I just didn't feel. First of all, they had me on the executive floor. I had a gorgeous office. Who gave a shit? I mean, it was just it was just so. I just felt alone. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm. Publishing is a, is a, is a, an endeavor that's done with teams, and I, I missed all that. So uh, even though I was in charge of some authors like Grisham, but, but still, uh, the, the publisher Knopf had to approve the jackets. I couldn't believe it. I think both of us were a little bit embarrassed by that. But nevertheless, we did the best we could. It was just demeaning. Anyway, I finally, I finally said to him, "I'm leaving." And he said, "You must stay. Write a book. Do anything you This want. is
0: Marcus Dolman. He just quit he, too, right?
1: He didn't, I think he was. He said they say he quit, but I think he was uh, asked to leave. Um, as well, he should have. Given the fact that he cost them two hundred million for nothing. You know, he had <laughs> there, there was a kill fee in that in that deal of two hundred yeah. million of his work. That that's the first time I've ever heard of that. Anyway, um, I said to Marcus, "What are you afraid of? Bad press?" He said, "Yeah." I said, I'm not going to trash you. And I never did, except now. Um, so, um, yeah, we parted amicably and I got a gigantic payout. Oh, God, I got so much money from them. I Actually, mean, it- what,
0: what is a giant, gigantic payout in publishing? <laughs> in, the, in the tens of millions of dollars? <laughs> no, two years
1: worth of salary in one lump sum. That's pretty cool.
0: So, so that's what, uh, about $100,000?
1: I'm not going to fall for your evil questioning <laughs> answer. Um, uh, no, no, it was, um, it was it was a sizable amount of money in
0: one lump sum. Do you think that, in all seriousness, Steve, it, it, is one of the problems with the publishing business these days is that only wealthy kids can actually get into it because they're the only ones who can afford to live in New York on twenty or $25,000 a year?
1: Yeah, no, no I, I think that's part of the problem. First of all, they, they never live in New York. They live in Brooklyn or Queens. Uh, and they split apartments, and um, you know every one of us, all the big publishers, have fought to raise the entry level, and we've succeeded. Uh, I, I'm not up to date about what what it is now, but every every single one of the houses has increased it. And you're wrong; it's not just wealthy white kids who who are there. I mean, especially now because there's such an emphasis on diversity. Um, But yeah, it's a real challenge to live on, let's say, $35,000 a year, especially in a big city like New York, But you don't live in New York, you live in Brooklyn or in Queens.
0: Steve, I saw a headline around your book in the London Daily Telegraph, a very conservative newspaper, suggesting, interpreting your book. You may not have formally written it, but their headline writers wrote it, that these days, you wouldn't have been able to publish Grisham because he's a white male. Is that what you suggest in the book?
1: Right. First of all, they didn't say that. I didn't say that. They didn't say that. They said, they said that, you, that that I, that, that I they quoted me as saying that a lot of publishers are ticking all the boxes for diversity. And in so doing, in so over subscribing to being diverse, to publishing people of color, to publishing gays. That they actually have, ironically, become not diverse because so many of their books are that. I, I'm not sure it would stop a John Grisham, but it might. Remember when John Grisham, when John Grisham's book, The Firm, was published in 1991, he'd written one other book called A Painted House. Every publisher in New York, he went alphabetically. He rejected it except Wyndham Press. So he was at W already. They published that book. So he was basically a nobody at that point. My question is, will publishers take a chance on these nobodies? I think less and less is all I'm saying. I'm not saying they won't, but I think they le- less and less. They're much more dependent on, on Spare or on uh, the Obamas because they're automatic guaranteed bestsellers or they're, or they're dependent on their repeat bestsellers, including
0: Mr. Grisham. Steve, are you surprised that the book has survived? There were a lot of obituaries, all wrong, of course, 20, 25 years ago when uh, the internet broke. But it seems as if, in, in terms of all um, formats, the book has done very well. People love the book. And if anything, books are selling, well, they certainly were selling better in COVID, and they're still not doing too bad, especially compared to CDs and, and other formats. Yeah, I'm not
1: surprised at all because you know when everyone said that that the uh, ebook is going to kill the print book i said bullshit um and i never i never subscribed to any of that here's the point people like the tactical fe- tactile
0: feeling of a
1: book i like it i bet you like it and, i do love it yeah i love it i love it and you know what and you can write
0: in it and you can-, you can
1: do anything you want and you know what i think a lot of people actually prefer hardcover books because they have more durability and um you know, a, a, particularly, you know, a, a 600 page word of, uh, book of history. I don't want to read that a paperback. I surely don't want to read it on an ebook. So I think, yeah, I think books are doing great. I'm not surprised at all. No, no. But remember, I'm Mr. Optimist.
0: You are Mr. Optimist. I still haven't found anything for you to be miserable about. Um, what about the Internet these days? Um... Steve, well, uh, this this interview publishing. is going to go out on LitHub, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, an online yeah. magazine, uh, social media platform dedicated to books. Ha- has the publishing industry done a good job in terms broadly of the internet?
1: Um, my publicist, who's really good, tells me that um, the only thing that matters now is social media. Um
0: you know, think I'm that's old. true, though? I think but that's people, what a publicist would say because that's what they're paid to say.
1: No, 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 she, she's been doing this for too long. I've, I've known her since I was a kid at Bantam, so no, no, she's great, and she would never. No, uh, I think that I think that's one part of it. Yeah, I think you really can't do anything without the internet anymore. I know it's the only thing, uh, but yeah, absolutely.
0: I mean, Oster, when I had him on the show, he doesn't even have a cell phone. He doesn't even know how to use the Internet, and he still he, seems to survive. Paul is a
1: scream. He doesn't have email. Right. You had to send him. You to
0: send and him. I had Pico Iyer you on the can, show recently, send, too. You. He doesn't have email or a cell phone either. He I guess the, the younger versions there. of Oster do. But in all seriousness, you have people, um, Steve, you know, with hundreds of thousands, millions of Twitter followers, for example, yeah. they signed book deals, I know some of them, they didn't sell any books. How do you, in your sense, how do you use social media, for example, to sell words and music? I mean, even if uh, you had a million followers on Twitter that you don't, how would you convince people on Twitter to buy your book?
1: Twitter because I'm not on Twitter. Um, So I think um, I think in my case, the, the only way to sell my book is to make people aware of it, and then make people hear all the marvelous, wonderful things that are in it, and then maybe they would buy it. Uh, like tomorrow, there's going to be an excerpt from it on Publisher's Lunch. Um, very uh, nice, interesting excerpt, um, uh, and. Um, I hope and pray that's going to help. Uh, You need to get the word out, the old-fashioned way and the new-fashioned way. I think it's a combination of both, particularly for my audience who isn't exactly
0: young. Well, I hope you'll have some young readers, don't you think that- Oh,
1: absolutely. I think it would be a great education for them. I don't know if they have any interest. Luckily, the book is short, so who knows?
0: Well, do you suggest that young people don't don't read anything long?
1: No, no, I'm (laughs) God, you're impossible. No, I suggest that being short is more attractive to people young and old. I think everything, every movie I see is, is 20 minutes too long. So every book that I publish, I've always begged them to cut it. So yeah, I, I, shorter is better. Not in any way to mess up the integrity of the book, but. Yes. Any
0: chance, Steve, of a third career, maybe in the in the movie business? You've been in no, books that... and journalism?
1: No, no, uh, Diane Frostenberg once told Barry Diller that I could run a studio and when Barry Diller asked me about that, I said, she's totally wrong. So I couldn't run the studio if my head was, I mean, no way, nor do I want
0: to. you run the studio better than the people who do, investing $100 million in Babylon. Finally, Steve, if this doesn't make you miserable, nothing will. What about the latest um, mania in Silicon Valley for AI chatbots, chat GPT? I know you're not a big tech guy, but I'm sure you've heard of it. Yeah, uh, give technology me a, that hey, allows... Give me a...
1: No way, no way, no way. I just, I just turned the page. I just don't deal.
0: Well, I just had a doctor who suggests that it's going to transform the medical industry. Why shouldn't it transform publishing? I don't think I mean, most will. books, as you know, aren't very good. Most writers aren't particularly good. Why can't the machines do their work for them?
1: Um, because I don't believe that they can do that kind of creativity. Never. And I, I don't. I don't know enough about it. Um, I, I would say that. Surely not. Take 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 the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. One of the books I'm most proud of having published. It's such an original story, and you're in the mind of a kid on with Asperger's. There's no way they could do that kind of creativity. They can check a lot of the boxes for a murder th- a thriller or some kind of other book, a romance. But I don't think they can do real so they literal. may not
0: be able to do bestsellers but for the that that's a brilliant book incredibly original but for the other 99 books out of 100 that aren't original ai can do the, the work for them
1: well first of all i beg to differ with you that the number is probably 85 out of 100 that aren't original uh maybe you're right i don't know but they definitely can't do the 15 you know, the other kind and in the same way in the same way that everybody predicting you know death
0: of books, it's not going to happen. So I haven't convinced you, Steve, to be miserable. Well, I'm I'm an optimist, remember, and an enthusiast.